Hello, world, and welcome back to the Shape of a Star podcast, where everyone has a story. We just need to shape it so that, like, we're the stars or something along those lines. So, happy Halloween, everyone. Although we're recording this on October 22nd, 2023, in case something we say changes in the next week. You never know what the state of the world these days. But, happy Halloween. I have an awesome guest today, who you may have seen on the realms of TikTok or other branded content and just I don't know I'm super excited that our guest today made so much time in scheduling and through their busy busy successful life to even be here so everyone please welcome Cynthia Dragoni hi Danny I'm so stoked to be here thanks for having me no problem but as I always say people introduce themselves better than I can introduce you so tell the people about you Hi, everybody. I'm Cynthia Dragoni. I am a dance artist, educator, dance media producer. We'll just leave that in. It's cool. Um, And you can find me at Cynthia Dragoni Dance on TikTok. I'm on other places, but that's that's my main haven where we have the most fun. Uh, I highly suggest everyone go follow Cynthia's stuff because that's actually the first topic today. You're known to the world for content creation of your own, at least in the widespread way. So we're going to dive into that. Sure. Great. How did you start your brand and style of content? Because it's very passionate fueled and stuff. So yeah, but you could do anything on TikTok. So how'd you choose what you do? Well, I am, I am a dance artist, dance person, deeply down into my bones. It's like all of my life gets lived through that lens and has for the past 30 years. Um, So I won't go into the whole life story because I guess we'll do that in pieces, but it was actually just a year ago, a little less than a year ago. I think I put up my first post on November 4th. Um, So a little bit before that, I had a meeting uh, with a friend of mine who's a journalist. She works for like big, you know, legacy media companies. Um, And she, I I wanted to promote a couple of things that I was interested in. And she was like, you know what? I'm technically not supposed to say this, but TikTok is the most powerful form of media right now. And you need to get on that right this minute. So, you know, part of what's most interesting for me is sharing about dance, just sharing dance, like through all the ways that that happens. So through performances, through teaching actual technique, through producing shows, you know, all the things. Um, so I was like, great, I'll just get on TikTok and start talking about the things I'm always going on and on about all the time anyway. Like, you know, I have opinions about other things, but there's nothing else that I feel like I really have something to offer. So dance is, you know, Anyway, so the most important thing, the most exciting thing for me is to share dance, particularly ballet, where it wasn't. So if that means taking it to TikTok audiences who maybe weren't knowledgeable about ballet, if it means taking it to refugee kids, if it means developing shows where they didn't exist before, you know, it's like sharing dance where it wasn't across socioeconomic cultural boundaries is my thing. (laughs) That was such a good summary. (laughs) actually, and a teaser of what's to come. Um, But yeah, no, I completely understand it. That's how this podcast came to be. My passion for talking and learning about people created this whole show. So I'm happy you were able to be successful, especially 
It comes through. It comes through. I hope you make this podcast super enormous. I want to come on again. <laughs> I would love to have you on again. Just come on every time you have something new. Um, okay, awesome. <laughs> uh, by the way, everyone, uh, at Cynthia Dragoni Dance on TikTok currently has 66.9 thousand followers and 4.1 million likes. Five of those <laughs> are from me earlier today as I was like diving through your videos again to remind myself. But I <laughs> love that. <laughs> But in less than a year, you have half a million. I think that's how the math works. Is it? No. Anyways, 66.9 thousand followers. You win the ratio game because you're only following 314 people. So <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So what do you use to do all of your editing? Because your videos are edited so well and you time like your content speaking or I don't know how you describe it what you say matches with what plays behind you and it's done so well thank you so much I really appreciate that um so up until exactly two days ago I just used the app <laughs> you can just edit it all in app and I make the videos pretty quickly like I don't think too deeply about them it's important I have learned about myself that I kind of need to fail publicly in order to develop. You know, it's like if I keep everything on the back end, making it perfect, like nothing ever happens. Yeah. So I just kind of force myself to pick a topic and I'll make the video that day, plan nothing. Um, and I just start talking about it. And sometimes the visuals work out perfectly. And sometimes they're a little off. It's like, there's always, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll, if I go back and watch something, I always see how the whole thing could be really turned into a documentary. It's like, it's, it's just infinitely deep. We could just keep going. So, but you know, at the same time, seeing that depth and all of the, you know, the information and the connections that go behind it, it could also stop you from ever hitting publish. So I just forced myself, I just, up until two minutes ago, two days ago, literally, uh, I just used TikTok and I edit it all like on the spot and I just hit publish and then go about my day. <laughs> that is such a healthy way though. <laughs> like not worrying too much. You're like, you know what world, this is me. <laughs> well, it's also like that. It's also kind of best practices on that app in particular. You know, like, I don't think that goes over as well on YouTube, but like TikTok, it's, you know, people are on there without their makeup, without their, it's like the least produced and that's part of what works on there. Um, Absolutely. So, so it's been good for me. I mean, I grew up in ballet. I definitely, ha I definitely can stop myself with my own, like, well, I haven't worked through all the details, kind of perfectionist stuff for sure. Sounds so, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely. I have a lot of projects that are like just on hold because I'm like, well, we could do X, Y, and Z. And man, you really just need to hit publish. <laughs> nope. I have definitely recognized that throughout people in the industry of dance. Yes. Oh, and by the way, I like how you mentioned that they're like mini documentaries because it's true. I think that's why it's so exciting when people come across your content, at least when I do it, I'm scrolling through because it's Thanks. like, what am I learning about today? Thank you. No, I really appreciate that. I really, I loved, I love doing it. I love it. And you know, you know, what's most exciting for me? Well, I have a lot of dancers on there and of course I love having them. I mean, they're my people, right? Yeah. Um, but I really get thrilled 
when people will come on and say, because of this account, I bought my first tickets to the ballet. Or, yeah, or because of this, I got a, you know, I got a subscription to Marquee TV that has all, you know, dance and opera and contemporary dance. Uh, it's like, you know, it's like Netflix, but for the arts. Um, and it just makes my heart open because I'm like, yeah, you know, this really is for everyone. And you don't need to dumb it down. You know, we don't need to go into a bar and do a ballet. Like, you just open a door. Yeah. Providing access to all. is and, and access to the high stuff. You know, like, it's not dumbed down. Because the, the highest version of the art form is really for everyone. Literally everyone. Across economic divides, cultural, social, your gender. Like, pick a divide. Pick one. And I'm telling you, it's for the, all the people. <laughs> yep. And historically, it was that way, too. And it wasn't until commercialization that it started to create, I feel, that discrepancy. I always think back to Shakespearean theater, how it's littered with humor that would be, I don't know, uncouth to some these days, I guess. <laughs> Just because you had to you had to appease the people like right in front of you, so they didn't throw crap at you, but also appeal to the upper echelon up there, which also is fascinating how much that switched over the years. Like, oh God, isn't it hilarious? Yeah, well, historically, ballet was was for the upper echelons originally. I mean, it came out of the the courts, um, but that's. And then, and then we still see it that way today, but it's had, it's had its ups and downs throughout, you know, the echelons of society throughout time. And it's really just, you know, that's just an invented construct. It's not real. It's for everybody. The way the sunset is for everybody, the way a flower is for everybody, you know, like you don't have to make a flower ugly in order for somebody else to appreciate it. Like you just walk into the room and you can just enjoy it, you know? And you yeah. don't even need to know anything about it to enjoy it. You don't even need to know the story, the history. You need nothing. You can just walk in. But I think people feel like it's not for them or they feel like they need to understand, you know, whatever. Yeah. No, that was me going to my first opera the other month, I should say. I was like, I knew nothing about Electra. Let's see what happens. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. It was actually at the Kennedy Center, everyone. But cool fun fact i went on like a random sunday afternoon show but like the actress who or singer i guess both the opera person who played electro like that french embassy came out and bestowed an award at the end and i was like oh i witnessed history today oh gosh isn't that fun yeah i love it when the embassies bestow stuff I, i'm a huge fan of a good fancy ritual <laughs> it was also great too because for those who don't know electra it's a tragedy so at the end, she's a bit disheveled. And she even said, she's like, oh, I thought I would have had a second to go like wipe off my face and put it back on before we did this. But here I am in my racks, happily with the sash and roses. Makes it even better. You know, yeah. contrast makes things more interesting. It was so fun. <laughs> um, so, oh yeah, the other part of your content as you edit behind you is that I was wondering, where do you find all the videos that you throw on behind you because it's like, I don't know, is this YouTube you're using? Like, how do you find it? Yeah, different spots. A lot of it's just on Instagram. And then I just use little like sound bites because it's for educational purposes. So you're allowed to just, you know, 
fair use act, you're allowed to use things under a certain amount of time just to teach people about something. So a lot of it's from Instagram, some of it's from YouTube, some of it are videos that I have like in my collection. <laughs> so I'll just film them <laughs> and then put them up. You know, it's like screen on screen. Um, yeah, I just look around and I keep like little folders of stuff to use for later. Yep, backlog content, just having the, the catalog, that's it. Right. The catalog helps you just do whatever you want. Um, so one of my favorite questions is next is that you have one of the most pretty surnames like I have ever heard. And I keep telling you that. <laughs> thank Where you. Where does Dragoni hail from in the world? Uh, thank you. So that's really sweet. Um, so my great grandparents on my father's side were from Abruzzo, Italy. Uh, it's, it's east of Rome, kind of a little bit to the south. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And actually that was something I was wondering too. I was like, this sounds so Italian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it means dragons. <laughs> Maybe I, I think it might be in the dialect. Like they, you know, there were hundreds of dialects in Italy and they weren't they weren't all unified under Florentine Italian until like pretty recently. I think it was in the 1800s. I think yeah. don't quote me on that. This is not an Italian history podcast. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Fact check us, please. Um, at the shape of a star podcast on Instagram. If you know the <laughs> real answer, I'm open for feedback. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but yeah, that makes sense too. Uh, my mom's side is from, I think, a mix of Sicily and like right by the heel of the boot near Sicily. Oh, or that's actually, cool. Yeah. So I hear all of the broken Italian because also my family is very new to the country is what I tell people. It was uh -huh. just my like great grandparents on my mom's side that came here. And it was right. just my dad who came here on my dad's side. So like we're a very new family. And I don't know. That's a fun part. <laughs> I love immigration, but um, so I'm into immigration. I'm a, I'm a fan. I've been learning a lot about it recently. <laughs> <laughs> With the state of the world today, I think we all have been over the past like eight years. Yeah, no, I mean, really recently within the past couple of weeks, but I guess, I guess we'll get into all that, but yeah, so our families might not, their dialects, they might not even have understood each other. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Uh, there are slang words that I've heard all throughout my life because for those who don't know, I grew up on Long Island right next to like JFK. Like where Goodfellas took place is literally the area that my mom's side's from. So it's just amazing. Like the slang I hear from there versus the slang I hear other places. And I don't know. It's like a wonderful, the melting pot effect, everyone. Yeah. Just no, it's so true. But I mean, even the dialects, like, like, whereas my ancestors would have had their dialect could have been, you know, I'd have to do research, but could have been as different from yours that they wouldn't even have understood each other. Mm -hmm. Even though now they're technically all Italian. Yeah. Oh, why am I going on my Italian side for this? It's like Cantonese and Mandarin, everyone. Right. <laughs> Let's talk about my Chinese side for a second. Yep. Literally, like, indisputable verbally, but they share a written language, which I thought was interesting when I found out. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. But as you mentioned, uh, we all know about the knowledgeable, how knowledgeable you are about the content you create. But what I don't know too much about, like, are things about you, really. So how did you get into dance in the first place? Yeah. 
Yeah, I kind of try to leave me out of it. Um, but so I, I, it was a little different. Like, so my parents did not put me into it. It was not their choice. I, I mean, I'm sure I was exposed to something at some point, like maybe on Sesame Street, you know, like something that yeah. I can't remember. Um, but when I was eight years old, you know, maybe my friends took ballet. Like, I'm sure there was an influence somewhere that I can't remember. But what I remember is that I was eight years old and it was like, it hit me. I knew I wanted to be a ballerina. <laughs> and, you know, so I made an announcement. This is what I was going to do with my life. Um, and, and at first my, at first, at first, right. This, this all shifted over the years, but yep. first my, my dad said no. And I like kind of went on this crusade about it. Maybe I had just read the story of Giselle, which is now still my favorite ballet, but I, I still have the drawing somewhere. I was drawing pictures of like girls who died of a broken heart before their because their parents wouldn't let them take ballet. And it was like, you'd see the girl on the bed and then I drew her ghost up top. You know, I was, I was, I was kind of intense. And my mother was like, okay, well, you know, calm down, Cynthia, we're going to ask for this for your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so I, you know, I was somewhere in the year of being eight years old and I was like, okay, that's only a few months. Like I'm in this for the long game. You know, I can wait six months. It's cool. So um, so we asked for my birthday and my dad said, cause you can't say no if it's for your birthday and <laughs> that my, and my, but later he was very supportive. I don't want to, you know, tell the wrong story there, but yeah. that was just how it went at first. Um, and so the, the local ballet school was run was called Wissick and Dance Academy and still exists and was run by a woman, Nancy Malmed, and she had this really great program. Like she she had teachers there who were Ukrainian and we we had these programs like she would bring this company from Donetsk, Ukraine every year. And we had these uh, in intensives with these teachers. So it was like I had access to this level you know, essentially like high level Vaganova, like Russian training, you know, cause it's the same in those days, it was the Soviet union. Like now you, you know, you say Ukrainian Russian next to each other and somebody will get mad at you, but yep. it, it's the same training, right? It's the same system. And in those days there wasn't a separation between them, right? It was still the Soviet union. Yep. Um, so, or I guess by the time I started the Soviet union, anyway, blah, blah, blah. So, Anyway, so it was like, you know, I, I walked in, I'd never heard of like ballet tap and jazz. Like I walked into my first classes as if it was something already serious and sacred. And this is the way we train and two hands on the bar and all of that. So that, so that was the beginning. Wow. Um, that also cleared up another question I was going to follow up with is, um, what age range were you in? Cause I actually realized I was like, I have no idea how old you are either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, so I took my first class. I was nine years old. It was for my birthday, which, yeah. you know, a lot of people think that you have to start younger than that. And you really don't, um, you know, 
the big ballet schools in the world, the ones that are state supported, you don't even start, but they start between some somewhere between the ages of eight and 11, typically, typically you'll find little exceptions, you know, maybe a little younger, but nobody's starting when they're three years old. You don't need to start when you're three years old. There's a whole TikTok about this, everyone. <laughs> I literally watched it while I was waiting for Cynthia to arrive to remind myself. <laughs> That's really funny. Well, yeah, because sometimes people reach out to me and they'll say, oh, I wish I'd known more about this earlier. My eight-year-old's too old. So that's why I made that. I was like, no, no, no. Your eight-year-old is not too old. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's the same age the kids on Dance Moms were. Like, I know that that's like a completely separate world, technically, of the dance realm. But... Sure. Yeah, because though they fully are diehard, like start when you're three. And I'm like, eh, do you really have to? Because I, I agree with you. Yeah. Like, well, eight. the benefit of starting when you're three is that is because in the cultural context of the US, we think of ballet as being for three year olds. So the benefit of starting when you're three is that then you're already in the studio and you get exposure. Hopefully you're in a good school and then you're already, you know, emotionally used to walking into that for the parents, right? It's like they're used to it. it becomes part of their <laughs> for world. The parents. No, seriously. It's like in any business, it's the hardest to get the customer to walk in the first time, right? That's why they have new customer deals across cell phones. And, you know, it's yeah. zero to one is the hardest. Um, you know, and it's enriching as I'm not saying that it's bad, but as far as technical training, the body and mind are not ready until they're a few years older. And that's just, that's a fact. Yes. Um, and if you ever want to know more about this, uh, everyone on earth has done a point video, learn about when point starts and you'll hear all about this more. Right. Yeah. And there's all kinds of different opinions on that. It's like, yeah. Yep. But that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> no, we're here to talk about you. So I want to know, throughout your years of dance training, is there a move that you would have considered your like favorite to do? So, no, there's not one. I mean, the things that came most naturally to me were like adagio and the arms, like kind of the slower, more expressive stuff. But, you know... I actually, I, when you, when you sent me the list of questions, I left that one in because ballet gets, cause I think it's interesting to talk about. It's like ballet gets misunderstood as something that's divided into moves when really it's a whole technique, the way playing a viol the violin is a technique, you know? So like you wouldn't ask a violinist is, do you have a favorite note? or a favorite scale. It's like overall their technique becomes its own language. Really, really that's it. It's like a language, right? So within a language, you don't have a favorite word or, I mean, you might have words that you like, right? <laughs> yeah. I love the French word for umbrella. Parapluie is just so cute and fun to say, um, but it's not representative of the language as a whole. So ballet is like that. It really, it's a language. Yeah, that's an excellent answer, actually. Um, speaking of which, before we move on, how many languages do you speak? Um, well, I, I, I wouldn't brag about my language skills. I was fluent in Russian, mm -hmm. uh, upper, upper level proficient, right? I mean, fluent is a strong word, right? I'm yes. fluent in English, but 
um, I could speak, I spoke Russian while, and, um, and I, I just, I never have a chance to practice now. So it's all far away from me. Um, and I, I'm highly functional in French. Um, and then I've studied a couple others, but they're the only ones that I can kind of handle myself. in. so English, French, and Russian, I can, I, I can manage life in those three languages. <laughs> still very impressive. <laughs> Even if we're not proclaiming fluent, it's still very impressive. Those are three very different, like, beginnings. And I don't know, just impressive to know. Also, it makes sense why I asked this later on, everyone, um, <laughs> as we start learning about your international endeavors. Sure. Um, okay, so... Oh, one of the things I had in here is that your makeup always looks amazing. I just want to point that out. Uh, <laughs> and, oh, literally right here. I loved your beginning ages TikTok was the next thing. But we went over that. But, yeah, I just thought it was very interesting because, like you said, too, one, ballet is very gendered in the very yeah. traditional way. Sure. And, yeah, just I didn't have no clue that he's – uh, I forgot his name, but he started when he was 17. I was like, wow, that is super like. Nuriev. Yeah. I think yeah. that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yep. Also because I didn't know how to pronounce it too, but yeah. Just well, to yeah. And there's a couple different ways you'll hear it. You'll hear it pronounced. I mean, you know, it's like when you're talking about Russian names or names from a different country, like I, when I'm talking about people on my TikTok, I just use the American pronunciation for, for the most part. And okay. sometimes I'll get people coming on there, like yelling at me that the accent is wrong. And I'm like, you know, this is for an American audience. Like I, <laughs> I don't feel the need. I don't feel the need to like insist on, you know, like if I'm going to talk about the the former director of the Paris opera, Aurélie Dupont, like in French, you would say, Aurélie. you know, like I don't feel the need to switch between it's right. like, who are we talking to? Like, this is, this is a pile of fun facts for an audience. And like, I don't want them to feel left out. So anyway, don't worry about your pronunciations. <laughs> it's about accessibility, people. Right. <laughs> Recurring theme. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned earlier that you studied in theaters in both the Ukraine and St. Petersburg. And just for those who are wondering, is training as strict and rigid as they say? Yeah. So... Well, Ukraine actually was, so it was a long time ago. It was actually my first ballet job. Um, I, so I worked, I worked in the, in the theater there in Donetsk, actually right on the border. It was my first job out of, you know, out of ballet school. Um, you know, so it's, so it's interesting with the way the world has unfolded now. Um, and, and I'll answer your question. And then, so I was working there. And then I had a chance to study in St. Petersburg, actually, actually privately. It was, um, I was already dancing. I was already working. Um, and so with the theater in Ukraine and Donetsk, we'd gone on a tour of Greece. So I was getting, that's relevant because I was getting paid in the Euro. So oh. I felt like I was rich, right? And it was like, <laughs> At the end of this tour, I had this like wad of Euro cash. And I was like, oh my God, you know, because with the exchange rate and stuff, yeah. like, I was like, oh my God, like I am like rich. And of course I was, I, you know, it's an, it's a rich inner life and look at what the cool things you're doing and you're learning, you know, yeah. but I was not going to retire on that money, but, but I felt like I was. So I was like, great. What am I going to do with this? 
And I'd heard of this teacher in St. Petersburg, uh, Yelena Marchenko. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to reach out to Yelena Marchenko and see if she'll train me. Because, you know, I was already working, but we're always learning and developing and you know, and because I felt like I was rich, I was like, of course I can afford private training now. Like, I'm just going to go and see if Yelena Marchenko can help make me better. And this was the days before, like, there wasn't Facebook. There wasn't, like, you couldn't just reach out to somebody, right? So it was like, I I reached out to people that I knew and was like, how can I get in touch with this dancer? And, and she worked, she trained in PERM, which a lot of people... Some people don't know, but that's that's like the third big ballet company in Russia. So like we know about the Marinsky, we know about the Bolshoi, but then there's also Perm. It's less famous, but they're like in Russia, they're considered to be very, very prestigious. So she trained there, but then she came to St. Petersburg and worked actually for the the contemporary company there that was run by uh, Run and, and it was his work, the choreographer Leonid Jakobson. And I was like, oh, my God, she's going to be the coolest ballerina in the world. I need to train with her. So I reached out to different people to see how I could get in touch with her. And the only thing that people had to give me were it was like I could get the number of the theater where somebody knew that she worked. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I called the box office every single day like a lunatic because right, because when I decide I'm going to do something, it's like. Ballet was good for me, provided an outlet for this kind of like relentless chip that I have. Um, so I called the box office every day, I think until somebody was like, okay, who is this crazy woman? Like this crazy American, you know, they can hear my accent. Yeah. So finally somebody like went and got her from the studio and pulled her to the box office phone. And I was able to go and I, and I, I got a visa. I forget. It was for a short. I couldn't get one as long as I wanted to. But so it was. So I went for as long as I could to train with her and, you know, spent all my Euro tour money on her, which was worth every penny, by the way. Right. It was like at the end of that time with her, because she'd come from this uber classical background, but then she did this contemporary work with Jakobsen and, and, it was like she understood the steps in this really interesting way. It was like I didn't I learned so much in that short amount of time from thinking about the steps from all of these different angles. It was, you know, it was really it was an important moment. And at the time, you know, because there are a lot of different companies in St. Petersburg, like there's the Hermitage Ballet and like there are these companies that like weren't the Marinsky that I thought, oh, well, maybe I could audition for them, you know, and stay. Yeah. Um, and, and she was going to help me with that. And then there were a lot of protests going on at that time. And, uh, you know, it's like, you come from the places where you come from and you have ideas about things. And it was like, I loved ballet and I loved specifically Russian ballet so much. And I was like, nothing else matters. This is what I'm going to you know, I want to be a part of this, but then, you know, we're spoiled in a way. It's like, you don't see, well, not spoiled. You're in your enclave and you see what you see. Yep. In the world. But so 
so I was there in St. Petersburg and there were all of these protests. And during one of the protests, I watched the cops beat up an old woman. And I was like, you know, I don't want to stay here. So, and this is, you know, not to disparage anything about Russian culture and, you know, with so much respect, but it was like, there were things that were important to me that I didn't know were important to me. Yeah. It's part and of I'm the learning. that the American cops are amazing, but it was just like what I witnessed on that street, I wouldn't have witnessed at home, you know? And I was like, I gotta, I, I, I thought I loved ballet more than anything. And, and maybe I do, but I, I, I'm out, <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, I totally get it. Yeah. But that's also the beauty of travel and growing up is just like learning more about what you value and like what you need in life. And it's a gift. Yeah. And like the things that about yourself that you thought were important, it's yeah, it's, it's cool. It's cool. <laughs> um, so you also studied at the university of Pennsylvania and the new school. Yeah. Um, how'd you end up, like all the way in Eastern Europe from Pennsylvania. Like I'm just trying to figure that whole timeline well, out. Well, I grew up in Philly. So my oh, okay. first ballet school was Wissagen Dance Academies in Philadelphia. Um, and so I, you know, I've gone through a lot of, as many artists do and, and particularly dancers. Um, well, I guess I shouldn't lean in so heavy on that word particularly because I've never really been a different kind of artist, but from my, observation you know you go through a lot of ups and downs with it um so at one point i i was like okay i don't want to dance anymore i'm gonna go to school like i can you know i'll be i wanted to learn all these different languages i was like i could do this that and the other thing i thought maybe i'd go to law school like you know you have your different interests and yeah and ballet is the study of ballet is so comprehensive the study and the work of it it's like if you're a dancer you know and, and this is not true in all the art forms right it's like it affects the way you eat the way you sleep because it's your body like it is it is truly comprehensive and the study of it especially in the u.s can be pretty narrow and that's part of the nature of the beast right like that's yep. how you're good at it um so I was like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, so I apply. So, um, and you know, I think I'd come home for the summer and I, I had this and I got a job and I had this little apartment and I was like, well, I don't want to move. I like my apartment. So where can I go to school that I can walk there? Right. So that was my, <laughs> I was like, great. I'll, you know, I'll go to, I want to go to University of Pennsylvania. I can walk there, right? <laughs> <laughs> we all have different ways of making our decisions. Um, so I, I applied through there. So I went and I met with an advisor and, you know, I had homeschooled, not homeschooled. I'd done independent study through high school. Like I'd had this alternative education because of my dance life. Yeah. Um, so I didn't take the SATs, you know, I didn't do, there were a lot of things that were normal that I didn't do. So, I, but I decided I should go to University of Pennsylvania. So I went to go meet with an advisor there and they were kind of like, you know, the guy was kind of like looking down at me, like, oh, you didn't do all of these normal things. Um, 
you know, we don't think that you can go here. And so, so then I wrote him a letter afterwards that like, let him know that all of my interesting experiences, because this is, this is what dance does for you. It's like you get connected to other cultures and you learn about different art forms and, you know, you learn languages, even if you don't travel with your company, we still, all the step names are in French. Like it's built in that there's this exposure to a broader world just from ballet study. Um, so, but at this point, like I'd already lived in Ukraine, I'd learned Russian, like I'd, you know, I'd done some interesting things. Yeah. So I wrote to him about why I didn't agree with him. And so he came back to me <laughs> and said, okay, you can come in through our college of general studies, which is for like adult learners. Mm-hmm. And if you get a certain GPA, it was like, you know, you had to get, I don't, I don't know. I'm making things up. Like what it was a 2.7 or something that that wasn't the perfect grade, but you had to do okay. Yeah. And then they would take you into the, you know, the regular university if you wanted to. So I was like, all right, fine. That's cool. Right. I'll come in on probation. And, you know, because, but that's fair, right? They're like, okay, yeah. you didn't do the normal route. We'll give you a chance and then you can do well, right? Like I can, I can be on board for that. Um, so I went and I got a 4.0 because I'm a dancer and they learn how to work and about, ba- you know, ballet trains your discipline and your mind yep. and, Anyway, so then I was accepted into the regular university, but then I decided I didn't want to go anymore because I wanted to go back into dance. So that was, that was that. (laughs) (laughs) But you tried it and you learned something about yourself still. So it still like fulfilled you. Well, and it's like, you know, ballet, which is something that's so misunderstood. It's like the, the, the study is so deep and you work so hard and you learn so much. It's like, everything after ballet is easy. Everything after that feels like a joke, you know? Um, and I, and I just missed it. And it was like being in the university to, in my view, wasn't going to help me in anything in my dance life. Yeah. So I wanted to go back into dance. So I did. And then, you know, the new school was another one of those moments where I was like, okay, I'm leaving ballet. But at this point I'd already moved to New York. And again, I was in a, in an apartment that I liked and wanted to walk to school. So I was like, great, Columbia is too far. How about the new school? (laughs) (laughs) And the new school also let, they would let you, uh, you know, design your degree, which by that time I was older and I didn't like, I didn't want anybody telling me what to do. So I was like, great, they're going to give me freedom. Their professors work in their fields. I think that's cool. Um, You know, so I took like, nonprofit management and philosophy and French, like things that ended up being useful. But again, I was like, never mind, I'm going back into dance. So, you know, <laughs> the my my university studies were all part of my dark moments with ballet. <laughs> okay. Well I'm glad that you were able to find productive outlets during dark times. Sure. Yeah, and you and you have to. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are many, many stories of those who don't, and it's not just in the dance world, like anyone in general. Of course. Oh yeah. Well, it's human condition. You know, the human condition is, is, is a struggle no matter what, where you come from. Yeah. So because you returned to dance, I kind of want to take a second to like talk about your wide resume and just because 
again, we don't know that much about you, but when I found the, all this out, like I was like, oh no, people should know about this. Cynthia here has lived and performed in all of these classical ballets. Swan Lake. And feel free to correct my pronunciation as we go on. <laughs> Don Quixote, mm-hmm. Giselle, La Bayadier, Spartacus, mm-hmm. which I didn't even know was a ballet. Um, <laughs> the Nutcracker, Sleeping Beauty, and Le Corsair. Le Corsair, yeah. Yes. I did it. And did. more. So I was just wondering, as you're like performing in these different productions and all these classical things, like what were some of the roles that you've done? Like, were you ever like named role were you always ensemble like hype yourself yeah. up for a sec yeah well it's it's not a super it's if if i wanted to hype myself up i might have even left that question out it's not a lot of hype i mean i have performed so that's those are standard ballets from the classical rep it's like most people who go through classical ballet to any kind of uh length will have ended up in those ballets um, you know, it's sort of like if you're an opera singer and you stay in it long enough, you're going to you're going to pick out like six operas and you're like, yeah, yeah, I've I've <laughs> yeah. been in it. Um, yeah. So like um, my my favorite. Well, and, you know, another thing that people don't. Well, I don't know if I should say people don't know, because I don't know who's listening and they might totally know. Um, but a no, lot of different people that listen. So right, <laughs> I yeah, don't know either. <laughs> um. Nutcracker is a ballet that you do from like your first, it's like, if you're, you know, you're over five years old in ballet, you're going to be in the Nutcracker every year for your entire career. So it's like at the end of it, you've probably literally been every role in it. And then in the other ballets, I was in the ensemble in the core. And I actually, cause I, I left the big company. I left the company in Ukraine. I was just there for like uh, a couple of years. It was two separate seasons. And then I came to New York and I started and I freelanced for 10 years, which New York is one of the only places that you can do that. Um, And so I actually have, so I have a little bit of scoliosis and nerve damage in one of my so I can still dance. I can, I can do stuff, but that the breaks, the, the different, um, what am I trying to say? The different schedule that you have with freelancing, like allowed me to keep on going much longer than I think I would have if I stayed fully in a classical world. That's such a cool thing to note though, that you understood your body and worked with what you had to in order to keep going and you're still going to this day yeah isn't it's it's interesting right yeah well well i mean classical work will just like it it's the hardest it absolutely is the hardest hands down um especially as the technique has gotten better you know it's like when those ballets were choreographed in the late or the mid to late 19th century in the 1800s, people weren't doing the pyrotechnics that we're able to do today. You know, it's like, as the time has gone on, we've gotten better, ergo, doing those ballets has gotten harder. (laughs) Yep. And that's also a TikTok, everyone, um, how ballet technique (laughs) has evolved over the last 150 years. Yeah, it's interesting, right? 
it's yeah. really interesting. Uh, whether or not you're in dance, I think it's neat. But my favorite of all of those ballets is Giselle. Like it's Giselle, the core, the soloist, whatever. It's 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 my it's my favorite. I don't need anybody else to agree with me on that. Like if you if if Giselle is not your favorite, I totally understand. We can still be friends. But <laughs> of all of them, that one's the closest to my heart. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was this close to being able to see Giselle perform because, you know, lots of companies go on tours and I was this close. But then I found out that I had to be out of town that night and I was so angry. Well, you live in New York now. You have plenty of opportunities to see Giselle. I'm by DC now. Oh, I see. New York. Yeah. I see. Okay. Well, Washington Ballet probably does Giselle sometimes. Yep. Well, I should say my specific circumstance was um, the university I went at was lucky enough to have a lot of touring like companies and stuff. Like I saw, oh God, I saw Alvin, Alvin Ailey. And, cool. But because I was a full-time student, it was free student tickets. Oh, that's awesome. I was sitting front row at the Joffrey Ballet one time and it was a free student ticket. And that's I awesome. was like in, going insane. I was like taking photos, like bad theater etiquette, but it was before it started. I definitely like in my seat, put my foot like, at like the corner of the stage to show like guys this is how close I am to watching their technique and like in action um awesome. I don't recommend you doing it but in a moment I was like it's like 30 minutes early I was so excited like yeah let me just show everyone that like ah opportunities I was lucky so yeah Giselle I wanted to see Giselle and I couldn't and someone did Dracula around here and I was like oh I wish I could have seen that but I had to again be out of town for other things well, if you get a chance to see Giselle, it's really, really enjoyable. The first act can get a little like, okay, can we cut some of this a little bit? Um, but I'm, I'm a huge fan of cutting things. <laughs> Enjoy. No, I am. Like, you know, it's like the, the audience changes. And I'm not saying that everything has to be short enough for, you know, an Instagram soundbite. But you know, you're not dealing with the same audience that we were a few hundred years ago. So like tell the story and keep it moving. So the first act for Giselle can get a little like, okay, are we still going? But there are beautiful moments in it for sure. And then it sets you up for the second act, which there's not, there's not even three superfluous counts in the second act. The second act is a pearl in the classical canon. It's a masterpiece. Now, I say the same thing about Into the Woods, actually. The second act, mm -hmm. I'm like, we could cut two or three of these songs, everyone. Like, sure. Sure. I mean, because all the woods is like three and a half hours also when you sit through it. Yeah. But I get it. <laughs> um, do, 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 do. Sorry, I'm trying to keep track of where we were. Okay. So not only have you performed in some of these ballets, but you're also currently coaching and directing rehearsals for your favorite ballet, Giselle. If we didn't yeah. catch on. <laughs> With, yeah. The Gregory Chianchi's Ballet Company in Paris. I hope I said that right. Feel free to correct yeah. me. Yeah. So he has a pretty funny name for the company. They call it the Raven Squid Ballet, which I think it sounds less funny in France than it does for us. Okay. <laughs> but it's a really beautiful company. Um, they, it's new. It's a couple years old. He's uh, So Gregory was a dancer in Paris and he's the head teacher for the Conservatoire Mozart here. 
Um, and he, during COVID, I think he went through a lot of changes in his life and he decided to sell his apartment and start a ballet company. And I just, I love those stories. You know, when artists are like, you know, cojones to the wall, we're just going to do, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to do it no matter what. So they've done some neat things and they're already touring. And um, so it serves as like a launch pad. So they take young dancers and give them these experiences, but, but it is a professional contract for them, but it's like their mission is to connect is to take young dancers, give them experiences and kind of, you know, polishing on that training, but also to connect them to different directors and artists. You know, it's, it, I, I, I like the mission. I, I think it's nice and it's, and it's fun to work with dancers who are, who are gifted, but still developing and yeah. who have already given their lives to it, but are, you know, still seeking. It's like an interesting kind of liminal space in the career. No, I totally get that. Um, for those who have listened long enough, they know that I coach Color Garden. I say the same thing. I'm like, you know, those big flashy people that compete across the country, they're cool and fun to watch, but working with like the high school level and like the yeah. ones that are just starting like finessing themselves, like I love the developmental stage. And yeah. so that's why I was like, oh my God, this sounds amazing. The Raven Squid Ballet Company, everyone. Yeah. Um, so when would the performances be happening that you're working on? So the shows are not until January. Um, but so I'll be here. I'm, I'm in Paris now. I'll be here coaching and um, directing rehearsals um, through December. And then, and then I have a, then I have a project in Texas that I'm looking forward to, but so the show, the shows are in January, but you can look everything up on their website. Gregory uh, Chianci, C-I-A-N-C-I, and then Raven Squid Ballet. Yep. You could also go to Raven Squid Ballet Company. It's spelled mm -hmm. in French, but you can easily translate it to English because I'm on it right now. Awesome. <laughs> and all you do is hit yes at the top and it should <laughs> just do it for you. Yeah. And it's also not broken English. It's good English, everyone. So yeah. Okay. Or again, accessibility. <laughs> um, I can't imagine going from Paris to Texas. Like that's such different climates. <laughs> I know. Well, well, I and as we'll talk about later, but I just I just came from Turkey over the summer. We were, I mean, we were in the desert, southern Turkey, um, and then and then to Paris, and then yeah, and then back to the desert. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that helps narrow what part of Texas because Texas is so vast. Yeah, it'll be it'll be in Lubbock. Actually, they have a really a great school there and like dance collective. They do some really interesting work. They have great arts funding. Uh, you know, like there's there's really a consciousness. It's kind of uh, sometimes people are surprised, but they do beautiful work. Like they've had uh, choreographers from different parts of the world come in. They're training good students. Like I, you know, I'm into it. I'll I'll have fun while I'm there for sure. Oh, that sounds like a dream. Um, but while it is similar for some people who are not knowledgeable about the industry, you are specifically coaching and directing right now, which are two very different mindsets. How would you describe the difference between these two mindsets? Yeah. So it's, um, micro versus macro. Um, the coaching is specific, right? Like which, 
accent of the music are you leaning this particular movement into? What's your overall approach to the character? Um, if you're coaching a, a group, you know, the, the details, where exactly are we coming in? You know, where is everybody's pinky finger? You know, it's, it's all about exactitude. And then the difference with directing is, is, is the opposite. It's like the full picture of the overall show and how does, how is this going to be received by the audience and what's the story arc for this ballet? Of course, we already know the ballet. This it's, it's not a new one, but I was just talking with Gregory yesterday about making cuts to the first act. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, you know, like how, what's the best possible way to keep the integrity of the ballet for sure. Right. And, and absolutely the integrity of the narrative, because if we miss something in the story, then we have a problem. Um, but you know, how can we keep it moving and how's this going to be the most appealing and fun and palatable for the audience? So are you just the director on the dance side? Because I'm thinking like, if you're like narrowing things, cutting things down, like, how does that com get communicated to the music side? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, just to be specific for the for this project, I'm I'm doing rehearsal direction and coaching. So okay. there's less of a big difference with those things. But um, so in any production, there's going to be well, some of them have the words divided like some will, you'll hear director and then other ones will also have an artistic director but that that's that's a little bit too nuanced for most productions you'll have the artistic director and they'll just make those decisions so then everybody falls in line under it so but it does need to be taken into account right it's like yeah if we're gonna put out certain choreography you can't just slice and dice the music, you know, you can't just take it like you're shaking up salad and mix it around <laughs> and expect it to be okay. So the, it's just something that all needs to be considered, but the artistic director, you know, would be at the top of the pyramid making top-down decisions. Um, yeah, that's a good question. You'll kind of, in most musical scores, you'll, you'll hear natural pauses. So if it can all be aligned with that, then it, then it ends up working. So lucky in that case, because for our competition side, we have to have like a specific time. And with the ever-changing landscape of pop music, how music, I think it's leaning towards being under three minutes again, which I'm upset about. I like when the songs are longer personally, mm -hmm. but for our stuff, depending on what division you're in, you minimally have to have, it used to be three and a half but they lowered it to three because I realized music was getting shorter <laughs> and mm -hmm. our choppy cuts were getting too crazy. So yeah, just something I'm always like, Oh, I wonder how they handle it. Like when it's live and not just me begging my friend to, can you edit this for me and make it sound <laughs> tolerable? Right. Right. So yeah. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to keep track because yeah. we are hopping so much and it's so natural and so well. I just, world, sorry. Give me a second. Do, 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 do. Okay. So, oh, we already brought it up. So let's just dive into it. So recently, and by recently, I mean like you just did it like a month or so ago. Like you yeah. returned from dancing, performing, and teaching for the Flying Carpet Festival. Um, 
For those who don't know, the festival works with refugee and displaced kids and tour along the Turkish-Syrian border. I was wondering, Cynthia, how did you get involved in such a specifically targeted festival? Oh, man. First of all, let me tell you, this festival is so close to my heart. I, okay, well, how I got involved, I'm like, let me give you the meat. It is a podcast, so we're here to normally try to make the story as short as possible, but we are here to hear the story. So um, <laughs> uh, I'll just rewind a little bit. Um, I, so coming back after COVID, <laughs> this is related. Um, so I, and I guess we'll jump to this later, but so I owned and ran a ballet school and dance collective in, in New York for the last 10 years. And th there was obviously a big disruption during COVID for that. And I had to close the physical studio space and, you know, we were online for years doing different things, blah, blah, blah. Um, so when it was, it was okay to come back in person, which for us was a lot longer after a lot of other businesses because we fell into the category of gyms. Yep. It was a weird thing in a time. Yeah. So when we were allowed to come back, it was like, okay, gyms can, and I'm doing air quotation marks there, um, can come back, but only operate at like, you know, 20% capacity for the space or something like that. Right. I forget what the percentages were. So all of a sudden, instead of me needing, you know, 500 square feet to do a class, now all of a sudden I needed, you know, 3,000 square feet. And and I was like, oh, my God, where am I going to get this kind of space? We're in New York. We don't have space. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Um, so somebody put me in touch with a circus company because the circus places need these huge you know, they need high ceilings. They just, they need space for what yep. they do. So I was like, okay, fine. And I went to the circus school and it was like, wow, it, it totally blew my mind. I was like, we need to combine something here. Like this dance and circus belong together. And what can we do here? So we started doing productions together and it was this really cool thing, which you know, we can get into that, but basically it was like this circus idea, you know, because ballet, ballet is very set, especially ballet in today's world. Like if you go to a ballet on a Tuesday and then you go again on a Thursday, you'll see the template for the show, especially if it's a classical ballet, whereas circus, you know, it can just be whatever you want it to be. Like you could do a circus show on a Tuesday and another one on a Thursday and they don't have any of the same not only not the same acts, but not even this, they might not even overlap in their skills. Yeah. And it was just so awesome. So, you know, and we did one production that we did together, we did Firebird. And so instead of having the dancer fly, instead of having the dancer leap onto the stage when the Firebird appeared, we had her fly. Like we just used the circus apparatus and to make the story more literal and really more magical. So, so that was a thing that totally opened my world. And then for years and years, I've been going on and on about how I wanted to work with refugees, <laughs> but I'd looked for different programs before, but it was either like, you know, they, it was, it was, it was 
the things that I found were either like, well, I'd have to do the whole thing myself and create it from the ground, which I could do, but it would mean giving up a lot of other things. Or it was like, it was too much in the realm of like dance therapy exercise, which I'm not against. I'm not against not even a little bit, but it's not what I have an interest in doing. Like I don't yeah. want to go away from the, what the art form itself. So anyway, I got introduced to the circus world and a friend of mine who works for Cirque du Soleil told me that I should check out uh, circustalk.com where things are, you know, they look for choreographers and dancers and artistic, you know, it's a, it's a forum, it's a platform for circus artists to find work and, and find performers. So I went on Circus Talk one day, I was just, you know, bored that afternoon. And I saw an advertisement to apply for this flying carpet festival. And I went on their website and I was like, oh my God, like this is what I want to be doing. Because first of all, the show itself that they do could be a show as a standalone thing. Like it doesn't need the humanitarian aspect in order to be valid and good work. Um, you know, like you could take that show and you could do it on you could do it on Cirque du Soleil stage or Lincoln Center and it yep. would be valid in and of itself. And then you have this other aspect of it that is really cool and really important. Speak right. Our hashtag for the show is for this podcast is accessibility, right? Yep. It's <laughs> this is for everyone and you know what the arts do for the soul. So the, uh, the person who directs the festival, uh, Sahba Aminikia, he he himself was a refugee. He's Iranian, but he's really, really established in his world. He's a classical musician and composer. You know, like we could name drop all day with him. Like he's worked with Kronos Quartet. His work's been performed at Carnegie Hall, at the Kennedy Center. Like you could just go on and on, right? Like he is super accomplished in his field. Yeah. But then also does this work. And I was like, yeah, get me in the room with these people. <laughs> no, that sounds, that's an amazing story, actually. Um, like your passion for circus performances. I go to every single circus thing I can do and go to. And I mean, I love your traditional like three ring. I've seen like, oh God, I don't know how to say it in English or French, but it was like, it's a Canadian troupe. It was like the seven digits of the hand. Okay. Yeah. Loved them because, again, my college had a lot of, like, random troops come through and I would go to all of them. And the people were like, you're always going to these things. I'm like, because they're free and then I'm not going to be able to do it for free for much longer. And, like, it's amazing. Right. Um, but actually, this leads to a story that you might actually find funny, too. So for those who know, I have a minor in dance and I was, like, in classes with most of the dance majors and everyone knew I was just kind of there. I'm like, hey, appreciate the art. I want to have fun, too. Sorry, I can't do everything you can. But... Go on without me. I'll catch up. Right. So I actually went and saw like Ringling Brothers Circus like over the weekend and I saw like the dancers like in the show. Yeah. And I was thinking, I was like, huh, you know, because from the outside, dance world can seem elitist with how they elevate some things, not something. Sure. So I asked my fellow students, I was like, as we were stretching, I was like, so I have a question. Um, <laughs> when you guys are like all like doing your companies and stuff, because some of them already came from companies, some of them were heading to some. I was like, is there like a hierarchy with how, like, I just saw the dancers in the circus immediately. They were all like 
absolutely not. They get the best insurance. (laughs) And I was like, what? And they were like, they get the same insurance as all the Canon people, all the acrobats. They are set if they get like one of those jobs. And they were just like really hyping up circus performers. And I was like, oh, that was so the opposite of what I expected. And just, again, just artists elevating artists and your expression of what works in your world and your medium. I warmed my heart. And that's why I remember it so vividly to this day. It's a really intelligent question that you asked them. Yeah. And it, and it, and it speaks to a lot of that ethos in circus. So uh, with the flying carpet festival, part of how they execute the festival is they coordinate with a social circus school that's on the ground year round in Turkey. Um, And a lot of the kids in this school are refugees and so have gone through these terrible experiences, right? I mean, they've come out of conflict zones, war zones, they've gone through war, they've been displaced. Um, and so part of the healing thing that comes along with, with doing circus is the, the connections that the artists are forced to make with each other. Like in circus, you can't let your fellow artist down because somebody will fall and break their neck. Like, you know, like we're dealing with life or death uh, circumstances, even within an acro class, you know? (laughs) And so that's part of the healing that, that is just built into the nature of the work. And then you genuinely get skills through it. You know, like some of these, these kids who have been with the circus school for a long time, they're like, I mean, they could be, you know, performing professionals. I mean, they really, uh, you know, develop their actual skills. But then it's like this this other level of, you know, heart-centered healing work that is just built into it, which is what I love, right? It's not like, oh, it's officially therapy. It's like, no, you're getting good at something. You have a skill that's legit, I can respect. And there are these parts of yourself that can, you know, be tended to in the way that they need to be tended to. No, that's an excellent way to say it too. That was a very intelligent answer and response. Like also because that was an upcoming question too, that I was, I don't know, the way we just framed that, I think we sound so cool um, and knowledgeable (laughs) and kind of you put a different perspective on it for me too, because I currently have a friend who she's supposed to head back to Lebanon, like at the end of the month. But with everything going on, she was like, should I go for amnesty now? And like, she was explaining that it was actually harder for her to be stateside with everything going on right now, because it's such a different perspective. Like there, she's on the ground. She knows what's happening more here. She's just wondering. Yeah. And that was like a conversation I had like 10 o'clock last night, everyone. I did. I'm like, I can't make your decisions in life, but (laughs) I... Think we all know what most of us are going to vote for in your case. Call her after this and tell her I said to stay. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to call her anyway, so totally works out. <laughs> um, but yeah, so just hearing about how it's the healing and the rebuilding and just, I don't know, the perspective of like on the ground of what you saw the healing wise, like the therapeutic mind that I, I don't know, just. Yeah, well, you know, and that's, and, and art does that for us. I mean, we're talking specifically about circus arts, which, which have the trust with another human being built in that, I mean, dance has some of that. I mean, of course, you know, with, 
with partnering work, you have to, you know, you have yeah. to work it out. But it's like circus, it's all the time, you know, with the the hand-to-hand -hand acrobats and the trapeze. And, and even, even if you're a soloist in the circus, you have to have this trust with the riggers, you know, the people who rig the thing. It has, so that, that trust and communication with, you know, your fellow human being is always built into the work in circus. Whereas in dance, unless you're specifically doing upper level partnering, although of course you have to communicate with your fellow dancer for sure. Like to do corps yeah. de ballet work. I mean, we learn to communicate in the air silently without seeing each other, like for sure, but yeah. it's not that same, but it, there's no life or death built into it. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it yeah. could be life or death vis-a-vis -vis your career, but not your actual like physical human body life. So I think that's, that's cool. But, but you know, all art does this for us. Like, you know, like one of the, the kids who was with the circus school, he was telling me, you know, he'd been through terrible things. Like actually uh, he's stateless now still, even though a refugee and, and being stateless makes it extra hard because, you know, like you need an ID to, to like open a bank account, like all of these crazy things. Like he couldn't get a scholarship to university because he's stateless because simply because they can't confirm his identity. And I'm like, are you kidding? Anyway, this is maybe a little bit too detailed, but he was telling me that the terrible things he'd been through in his life. And, and he was like, but you know, the circus gave me hope. And, and these kids, like they're, they're joyful, they're responsible. And they have no time for neuroses. No. And I was like, you know, I don't even know. I don't know if it's even appropriate for me to say, but in a lot of inner ways, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Right. Of course. Yep. But in a lot of inner ways, not outer, but in a lot of inner ways, they're better off than a lot of American kids. That yeah. I know. They built the resilience and have the liberation of not, I mean, they have anxieties, but like, it's more practical. It's a practical viewpoint, kind of. Yeah, and I just, I just think it's interesting. It's like, we're, we're just so privileged. And then what are we doing with our time and our energies? Like we lose sight of the responsibility that should come with privilege. Yes, that's, oh, thank you. That was the best way to circle that back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Guys, like. I don't know. I'm getting like super into this combo, and I just like wow. In live and live, I'm into it. We're we're touching on the important things, right? Yeah. And so we already mentioned how the festival works with artists across so many different genres, but um, there are so many different artists from across the world that come the to world. collaborate for this. Yeah. yeah. The um, genres, the world. Yeah, visual artists, musicians, circus artists, dancers. I, I'm sure I'm missing somebody, so forgive me. But yeah, all over the world, France, Lebanon, Iran, Iraq. I think I left some off that list. Australia, the U.S. Yeah, you also had Turkey, India, Uganda. Right. Yeah, I knew I was forgetting like half the list. <laughs> but so just one, what an amazing collaborative like experience to have, like even as a performer, or even as like an artist like you were working with. But I was just wondering, how does everyone communicate from these so many different language worlds? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. And you know, 
so mostly everybody speaks English. Um, which, you know, maybe somebody has some kind of a feeling or opinion about that, but that's, you know, it's, it's like assumed that that's going to be the language that, that we'll communicate in. Mm -hmm. um, there, there was a fair amount of Google translate got a fair amount of, uh, of airtime during the, during, during the festival, but yeah, yeah, it's English. Okay. Which is another incredible privilege, right? It's like if you're coming out of a space where that's just your language anyway. Yeah. Um, that's something I like to point out to people too. Like language is so, I don't know. It's about accessibility again. That's just the best way to say it. All circles back to our hashtag theme of the day. Yeah. Just you know, and it really, oh man, it really like makes you look at yourself. Like, you know, because you were asking me earlier what languages I can, you know, profess to speak. Yeah. And because the last, you know, decade or so, I I guess I feel like I travel a fair amount, but it's most, it ends up being mostly to French speaking countries. So it's like, it's been such a long time since I've been in a space where I didn't speak the the native language. And I was just like, wow, are you kidding, Cynthia? Like, I, like, before going, I didn't know three words in Turkish. You know, I knew two words in Arabic. Like, I don't know. I'm like, I get, I got to change that. Like, you know, the level of, of, of ignorance, and I'm not putting myself down. I mean it, I mean it in the original sense of the word, like, as in being in the dark, not knowing. Yep. Lack of knowledge. Yeah. Um, you just, you just don't even realize like there, there are millions of people across the world that like that's their original language and, and you've never touched it, which is also a part of our privilege. So not, and, and not, you know, we don't need to take our privilege away, but what are you doing with it? You know, yeah. let's have a think. What are you doing? <laughs> let's have a think that, yep. <laughs> Concise. Yeah. Um, this actually is part of the next question yeah. uh, that you being there and being around so many different people and different artist genres, like were there any cool things you picked up while you were working in the festival? Oh my God. Well, you know, I'm still, I think that I have an answer to that, but I don't know what the answer is. It's like, that's what I'm working through now. Like, because my, you know, my background is so, deep but narrow right like I'm steeped in my subject and have been for a long time um but you know I've and then I've been interested in other things but because I stayed in ballet despite my you know forays into oh well maybe I'll quit and to go do something else I always come back to it yeah. right it's like, <laughs> Like I used to joke that I've tried to divorce ballet so many times, but then like years ago, I was like, okay, fine. I'm settled. We're together. You know, <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. It's home. Yeah. Um, and, and I've always felt really strongly about what the arts can do for a human being. I mean, I know what it did for me. Like, like my life would have been very different and I've had access to, a level of education and echelons of society that I would not have had if I hadn't been in dance and, and specifically ballet, right? Cause it's so like, you know, top of the, 
top of the ivory tower. Um, so like just witnessing and, and getting to know these, these people who have had, you know, way more difficult circumstances. And it's like the door that it opens for us internally and externally, I guess what I'm working through now is that that feels more important than it ever did. And what's going to be my contribution working, moving forward. So this might not be the question that you were asking me, but it's like what I'm walking away with is that I'm not going to say that I don't know who I am, but how to integrate, you know, the responsibility of not only the privilege of where I come from, meaning like, you know, the Western world and the U S specifically, but like to have had this education within the art form and to have this like precious gift of, of the knowledge. Like it just feels like on this next other level, I'm like, okay, what are we doing with this? Where are we going? Which maybe is a question that we're always asking ourselves, but like, it's like I have integrating to do that before this festival, I knew that this festival would be important. I've been looking forward to it. And, you know, I was, I was into it. Um, but it's like, I didn't, I didn't realize, I didn't realize how much I didn't know, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And actually we were going to film this before you went over and then you were like, wait, let's just wait till after. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and no, I'm glad we did now because just you're beaming about it. And that's what I love to like highlight what makes people happy and what fulfills them in the show. And I don't know. This is just yeah. And you know, it was so interesting. Like, so one of the, the a couple of the plates, cause it, we, it tours, right? It goes through different cities on that Turkish Syrian That was order. the next question, so go for it. Oh, oh, well tell me what the question was. So let me make sure that I answer the full thing. Oh, um, it was just like, how is it touring on that border <laughs> basically? Oh, like yeah, so we went through, so it's on the Turkish Syrian border. So we performed in, in, Mardin in Estacion, in Midyat, Diyarbakar, um, Adiaman, Adiaman, Turkey. So a couple of these cities were, a couple of the places where we performed, the venues were inside what they call container cities. So it's where people who were displaced from the, from the earthquakes yeah. in February. So, you know, so, Oh my God. And it was, it was intense. Like you drive by some of the buildings are still like, you'll still see rubble. I mean, not, it's not like the earthquake happened five minutes ago. Right. And nothing has been cleaned up. That's not what I'm saying, but you know, it's going to be a long time to recover from something that that that's that big of a deal. Anyway. So some of the, the container cities, especially were in really conservative areas, like conservative Muslim areas and, I had just never had the opportunity to be inside of that kind of a culture. So I was curious. I was like, you know, I just, I just wonder how it will be received. You know, it's a performance. I'm going to be teaching some of the kids. I'm going to put them in costumes. They're going to be on the stage. Like, I just, I just don't know. Again, like reflecting on my own ignorance. Right. But it's, it had never been an opportunity that came up. Yeah. Um, and those places were some of the most powerful experiences. Like I had some of the mothers crying, asking me to stay, you know, asking, asking all of us, but they were talking to me at that moment, 
Um, and the kids were super focused and just so into it and so much talent. So it was like, you know, this is, this is all for everybody. And, and of course that's the beautiful thing that art does, right? It's like, it's beyond language. It's beyond religion. It's just beyond all of it. So how can we do more? So, so for me coming from, you know, like, yes, I've spent time in Eastern Europe, but it's, but it was all the ballet world and, you know, a lot of time in France and New York and, um, you know, all of these places where it's like, as far as the way we see ballet and the arts, it's the same, right? So yeah. there hasn't been a lot of diversity in, in my experiences through that. So this was interesting for me and moving. And I was like, yeah, we got to do more. Yeah. And I don't know, just, I don't know, again, your passion uh, just, it comes through and you actually answered all the other questions in that one answer, which is also amazing too, because yeah, you just, I don't know, you could tell that you really internalized your experience and that's just amazing to see. Thank you. And I'm happy you're here to share. That's the big thing. I'm happy that you have a place to share because again, your TikTok is very much focused on like mini documentaries about things. And I don't know if you would have shared this with the world on there. So I'm happy that there is a place where your story is being shared. Thanks so much. Well, it's hard to do it in sound bites, you know, it's like, it really has to be long form. Yeah. In order to really, in order to really get into it. So yeah, all this gets left off of TikTok. Yeah. Well, you're welcome to come back anytime with more experiences. I, awesome. we have a, I love talking, but okay. So I have a bunch of technique questions since that is what your wheelhouse. Sure. Is. Yeah. Definitely my wheelhouse. Yeah. Okay. So you've performed in contemporary dance as well, along with ballet. Mm -hmm. How is that switch going from such a strong ballet basis to contemporary for you? Um, well, if you can do classical ballet, you can do anything. Um, yep. Especially if we're talking about modern dance, contemporary dance and or ballet, contemporary ballet or neoclassical ballet for sure. I mean, that's of course. Um, so, you know, it can be a little bit more grounded. Like there are different coordinations. There's going to be more floor work. And, you know, I'm not saying that if you can do ballet, you don't have anything else to learn. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is if you can do classical ballet, if you're talking about other codified dance forms as codified as opposed to folk dancing, right? It's like, if I can do classical ballet, that might not set me up well to do African dance. It might not set me up well to do flamenco. But um, as far as the other codified, like, you know, we made this up, we gave it a name, we gave it a step name, then the level of nuanced control that you get with doing classical ballet, it frees you and you'll be able to do, you'll be able to do well at every, anything else. So I'm not saying I was the most amazing, but it's like, <laughs> really, that's not, that's not at all what I'm saying, but you know, be, because I was proficient as a classical ballet dancer, then mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. You can do whatever you need to do. Yeah. Um, by the way, I'm obsessed with your technique Tuesday TikTok that you had. <laughs> about the dance emergency of your sickled feet. <laughs> um, it is a dance emergency. <laughs> uh, I've never heard anyone talk about how to fix it before. So 
I just am happy that someone finally did, that it really is just constant, slow repetition to rewire the neurons of pathways in your brains and stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, those, yeah, those neuromuscular connections. Well, you have to treat it as an emergency because the foot is always being used. And, you know, you could, my teacher used to say about a couple of different things. She would, <laughs> she would say, well, you know, honey, like if this, if other thing, it's like if you, she would talk about if you look the part, not with the sick old foot, but she would say, if you look the part, they'll forgive a multitude of sins. <laughs> and I thought that was so beautiful and so dramatic, but it's like that. It's like you, this, the, if the foot is out of order, you could have everything else. You could have no other sins and you'll be, you'll be written off. You know, it's, it's, it'll ruin, it'll ruin the career. So it needs to be treated as an emergency and you need to put everything else aside and fix that. However long that takes, if it takes six months of just doing the footwork. Yeah. You, you got to do it or you won't be a dancer. Yeah. Um, oh, I also want to give another shout out for your technique videos. Cause you had a video that was talking about how the lift D in a lift is also working. It's not all on the base or the guy in most cases. Like, right. I don't think people realize that because I've tried to explain that to like my students. I'm like, guys, it's not just someone throwing you up there. You're doing a ton of things too. Oh yeah, for sure. Right. Because, right. Because especially in those big lifts and partnering, it looks like it's all the guy and, or the, you know, the base for the most part, it's the men. Let's be real about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's why I said it. Yeah. Well, especially, well, in, and in classical work, it's all the men, yep. um, like zero exceptions. Um, it, yeah. It looks like it's just all his strength and it's <laughs> that, that, that post got really misunderstood by a lot of people. Like um, oh. some people thought it was like, like a, like a kind of a woman's, right? It's like about women doing emotion, like invisible labor. Other people thought it was like about disparaging the, the, the importance of the man. And I was like, I was actually just talking about the physics because yeah. the ballerina has to hold herself like her level of strength and placement and correct execution is such a huge part of how those lifts even happen. And I just thought it was a neat fun fact. Um, and that's for the lifts. And then for other parts of partnering, she's actually doing basically all the work, which is really interesting because visually it looks like she's not. And so that's all. I was just like, I just think it's interesting when something is not what it seems. <laughs> no. And I love talking about that too. In other episodes, I can't remember which one right now. If you guys yeah. watch like Marvel movies and stuff and you've seen one with like black widow in it and that thigh move that she does that's all the base right she swings herself around and lands and he throws himself over like right. 90 pounds scarlett johansson don't not like body shaming everyone but like i'm just taking a guesstimate um <laughs> and sure. versus like him like sure it'd be cool if our thighs were that strong but also like when you watch it it truly is she lands before he throws himself over right right visually fun to watch executionally I don't know, just got to think of these things too, especially when yeah. people try to mimic. Yeah, well, and it's just physics. It's like, it's the same with the cheerleading, you know, when they do those pyramids, the yeah. flyer, as I think that's what they call them, the flyer yeah. 
has to be able to hold themselves in this correct way in order to execute the step. And it's just neat. Yeah. It's physics. <laughs> right. It's not us. <laughs> right. Um, I didn't take that post that way. I took it exactly as you meant it. I did not even see those comments. Uh, maybe it's just like my algorithm, like seeing all like the praise in your comments. I will say though, <laughs> there was a time that you literally replied to my comment. I think it happened like two or three times. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I try to reply. I mean, it's like, you know, people were all in it together. Like we're just, we're just having fun. Like, you know, it's important. You have to talk to your people if you can. Um, one of the posts that I remember specifically, it was something about like soloists and stuff. And I was just like, Oh yeah, that was all cool info. I personally love a good core, a good mm -hmm. ensemble. I think will outblow any solo any day. And you like, heart you liked it and then you said something really nice and encouraging about that opinion i was like oh cool yeah well that's really true i mean we were talking about this before we started recording like the that's exceptionally true in giselle mm -hmm. the the corps de ballet which if somebody doesn't know that's the ballet word for ensemble in classical ballet it literally means body of the ballet um you know, if you were to take out the corps de ballet of most ballets, then it just becomes a stream of like ballet's greatest hits, you know, one solo <laughs> after the other. And, you know, you think about it and it's not to disparage any ballerina. Of course, I love them. Right. I mean, I love star dancers, like love them with my whole yeah. heart. But there's there's a limit to what you can do with a solo and a soloist. And you know, the, the, the geometric, like cosmic patterns that you can make with the group is unlimited. So if you're to take that away, you know, it's just so important. I mean, that's what makes these ballets is the core. Yeah. And again, it's like what you said too, just like visually there's more happening. Also, exactly. it's so hard to get people in sync comparatively to someone just doing one thing well. Well, right. Exactly. That's, that's really true, which is why the soloists, um, you know, like you could, e you could even change choreography. Nobody would know. <laughs> yep. I have done that many a time in my coaching career. I'm like, oh, you, it's not like, it's like a height reason why you can't spin that flag that certain way. It's just too big physically. You're not going to be able to do it that way. Congrats. You're going to get a solo for a second. Right. <laughs> And people are like, I don't know, some of my students used to get upset and I used to have to describe them like, no, guys, like, let's be real. If you're watching a show, what are you going to notice? Like the thousand of people over there doing something or sure. her over here doing like a little tiny thing? Yeah. Like, don't worry. Being a part of an ensemble, like, it's a great thing. Sure. And yeah, uh, I, at least in the entertainment industry side, like when you like watch like High School Musical or something. The big dancing is not the people up front that are like the stars. It's really like the background people doing the really cool stuff. Oh, hairspray is a great example. Like, sure. You can't yeah. see like that movie, the way they filmed it. Yeah, so many of them. Well, it's just so interesting. You know, it's like, it's like looking at the cosmos and, you know, one's star not star but you know planet moving forward or backwards it's like that's what we're observing in in the court of ballet you know it's like this this kind of like cosmic communication between these these dancing bodies you're like this is this is cool yeah <laughs> um 
we'll actually get in a little bit into more of that later on, everyone. But just one thing I think is fun of your technique videos is something I've always known is that I never would have made it in professional ballet because of the height requirements. <laughs> um, no, you're a guy. You could have. I don't know how tall you are, but you you could have. Really? Okay, because I'm five five, so I'm a bit like on the shorty end. And... It would have been. It would have been. Okay, it, so we'll be frank about it. Yeah, it would have been less easy for you mm -hmm. at that height. Um, but if your technique was good and you're handsome, which you are, and oh, if you were you. strong and a good partner, um, it would have been easier for you than than a lot of women still, just because of the supply and demand factor. But yes, if you're if you're not super tall as a guy, it makes it a little trickier, but but nothing like it is for the women, just because of the sheer numbers, right? This is a numbers conversation. I fully believe that also part of, I feel, oh God, I don't want to say this incorrectly. So feel free to help fact check me on this. Of I think this is a huge part of like sexism of history too. Like women face a lot more than what we as guys do. And this is just another aspect. Also, maybe it is because of sheer numbers too, but also I think expectationally, like just. Sorry, what do you mean history of what in general? History, yeah, history of the world. Just how women have always like faced more disparity and barriers than well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like the feminine has been oppressed yeah. in all of us. It's oppressed inside, you know, because we all have where we all have both internally, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have masculine and feminine expressions. So the feminine has been oppressed in both the literal women and and on the insides of the men. And we're all suffering for it. You know, men have problems nowadays, too. And it's like internal problems. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like this this absence of the integration of the full self. It's like, you know, it doesn't make any sense. No, that's actually, a go with whatever Cynthia said, everyone. Cynthia said better than I did. Um, uh, which we're actually, that's going to come up a little bit later too, when we get to other things too. Sure. I don't know if you realize that yet, but it's coming, I swear. Okay. <laughs> um, just a little, little shout out for Cynthia, but you were awarded a place in the arts management slash capacity building program at the Kennedy Center, um, which is awesome. What did you actually do in that role? Like, so, that like was, so that was a program. So Michael Kaiser, I don't know if you've heard of him. He has a, a fun nickname in the dance and performing arts world. They called him the turnaround king. Um, he has this amazing story. Uh, I'll just try to keep it bullet pointed so I don't misquote. But he came from the finance world. And I think... Uh, had some kind of a, you know, come to Jesus moment where he was like, I need to make a change and um, was looking to work in the arts. And he said that, you know, nobody would hire him because he, he didn't have experience in the arts world, which just goes to show you how short sighted and not strategic people in the arts world can be. Um, so he said that Kansas City Ballet at the time was going to fold and so they let him work for them for free. <laughs> and 
um, because, you know, he was in finance and he could do these things. And it was like, okay, sure, you can try. Like we're on our, we're, you know, we're tanking anyway. So, go, you know, give it your best shot. And so he, Kansas City, but this was many years ago. And Kansas City Ballet, if you don't know, is a respected company in the U.S. They still exist. So he had this, like, so he, he helped turn them around and they're still a successful company. And then, um, you know, his like strategic, you know, the strategic finance background was super applicable in the arts because it's strategy. Like, how are we thinking about this organization, this, not just organization, this organism that yeah. is the company. Um, so then he did the same thing with American Ballet Theater, Alvin Ailey, Pennsylvania Ballet, which is now Philadelphia Ballet, but um, I don't know why they changed their name, but probably for some kind of fund re funding reason, but forever it was Pennsylvania Ballet. Um, okay. So, and so he turned these companies around, like brought them back from, they were, they were going to close. And it was like this way of thinking about the company as an organization and getting the fans involved and, and this like long-term strategy. Um, and then for 10 years, he was the executive director of the Kennedy Center and, you know, applying all of that. So he had he started this program that was between the Kennedy Center and they actually collaborated with BAM, uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music. Oh, OK. Um, and then I think maybe they coordinated with University of Maryland, but I don't remember. Anyway, it was like you could apply and they it was like a free kind of like arts management training program that was open to both arts organizations and artists. So it was cool. It was like at, I didn't, I didn't have to live in DC and you know, you went to these lectures and did they paired you with a, with a company to like kind of intern with, it was, it was cool. It was at the beginning when I was first starting my, school so I was interested in learning from the people who had like the most you know contemporary take on like leading an arts organization so it was you know it's it sounds fancy I like the way it sounds but basically it was like uh you know like an arts management program that was run by someone who was had had real like legitimate experience in the field no, that sounds amazing still. Like, I don't know. Knowledge is power. So you got knowledge and you got to experience, especially at the beginning too, like you said, like you're groundbreaking, a trendsetter, all those <laughs> cool phrases. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and through all that too, Cynthia, everyone, by the way, also creates curriculums that are available online via her website, which will be linked in the bio, <laughs> whatever it's called. Because, like, show notes is what apparently podcasts call them now. Whatever. Down at the bottom. Go look. Right. Um, yeah. There's, like, three big curriculums I saw. One on classical ballet. One on arts and artists and dance. And one about pol politics and history through dance, which I thought was fascinating. I got a few questions about it. Sure. Um, yeah. So, for the arts and artists and dance, in this particular curriculum, you have students learn about how artists had their works turned into famous ballets, uh, you know, such as like Hans Christian Andersen, Shakespeare right. and people. So in your opinion, how come The Little Mermaid isn't more widely produced as a ballet? Because I feel like there's so much like creative exploration possible. 
right? Speaking of Hans Christian Andersen. Um, well, you know, and Disney ruined that story. She doesn't get the guy in the end. In the original fairy tale, she turns into sea foam, um, which is, you know, what should happen to you for giving up your voice, <laughs> for giving <laughs> up what's most beautiful about you because you have a crush on somebody. No, you need to keep your voice to yourself. Um, I, why isn't Little Mermaid done? Well, you know what? I think it has been done Actually, I know it has been done, but you're right. It's not a big part of the the rep. We don't we don't do a lot of new work because it's really yeah. hard to do new work um, in this in this country. And I mean, I'm in France, but we're going to talk as if we're in the U.S. Um, yeah. Because things need to sell. So familiarity is easier to sell than something that's not familiar, which I guess Little Mermaid is still familiar, but I don't know. There's just not a lot of new work that sticks. No, I totally get that. Actually, um, in similar conversations, but a different entertainment medium, uh, Signature Theater, everyone. It's a small theater, but does like amazing work. They've won Tony's outside DC, everyone. I went to one of their artist talk nights and they produced a production of Pacific Overtures, one of Sondheim's like, least produced thing and it's actually about japan opening up from isolation and stuff but i accidentally went on talk night where the creative artists like come on stage and stuff and talk about all the stuff and it was like a giant q a and so yeah. i was super into it um the audience was an older audience i will say and they kept asking about like the cultural nuances within like the japanese part of the play and i could tell that like the creatives were getting a teeny bit not frustrated, but they were just like, wow, this is really repetitive. And so they had to come out and say like, and I swear this is relevant. Um, Cause yeah, when they came out and they were like, look, even contemporary art, like Kabuki theater, people think Kabuki is like stuck in the 1500s. It's not. Kabuki theater in Japan is a lot of anime. Yeah. Now. It's what's selling. It's how we keep the art alive. Like it's not like a super traditional format that, hasn't changed in years it's a living breathing organism and yeah. everything you were just saying right yeah right yeah and oh god it's just it's really hard it's really hard not to have because it's hard for people to take risks right because if yeah. you you we need to be able to you know throw you know what at the wall and see what sticks like we'll call it spaghetti. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's like, well, we know that Nutcracker will sell. We know that this will sell, you know, so it becomes calcified instead of being a verb and a living, breathing thing. It becomes a noun, right? The ballet, the Sleeping Beauty, the Nutcracker. It's like, oh, this thing that has always existed. And so, yeah, Little Mermaid. Yeah, I, th I think Little Mermaid would be better as an immersive something or other, you know, okay. and see. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also, because I know that someone has produced it before. Like I saw costumes for, I think it was Japan did a production of it and it was a ballet. And I was like, Oh, how does costuming work? Like, you know, ballet is kind of a two leg um, sure. thing. So it was just pretty costumes. And I didn't even realize it was a ballet for the longest time. Cause I was too busy looking at it costumically. Um, oh, so for your politics and history through dance, yeah. I think it's fascinating that you learn about how the Russian Rev Russian Revolution 
and communism is necessary to understand like Nureyev and Baryshnikov yeah. mm -hmm. along with just like how Napoleon influenced things because I don't know about you in independent study or alternative like study programs and stuff. I never learned about Napoleon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Was it, I want did you finish the question? Yeah. I don't know if it was a question or just like a talking point. So. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting, right? So I, this all happened during COVID because I went online with my students and, you know, you can't, I couldn't in good conscience, just like, try to do a ballet class in their tiny living rooms. Like I was like, how are we going to make this interesting? So I started doing, we called them dance talks where I would just like pick a subject that I felt like talking about. And Nuriyev is a great example. So Nuriyev, if you don't know, is one of the greatest dancers that ever lived. Uh, he's, he's, he's considered a Russian dancer. Actually, he's a Muslim totter. Um, anyway, he, so I was, so he's my personal favorite dancer, living or dead that has ever existed. Nureyev is my favorite. So I think on one of our first dance talks, I was like, great. What, you know, it was the beginning of COVID. We didn't know what's going on. I was like, just come online. I'm going to tell you about my favorite dancer. <laughs> and, oh, and so the, an important thing about him is that he defected from the Soviet Union. Like he ran away in the airport in Paris being chased by the KGB. And that was part of his stardom, right? Was this amazing story and he couldn't go back home and, you know, all the drama around that. Wow. And I was like, and just talking to my, my kids, my students, I was like, well, how can I, I can't really teach them about Nureyev if we don't learn what the Soviet Union was. And then we have to go back a little bit. Like how did the Soviet Union come about? And you know, the, the first Russian revolution and who were the czars? And it was like all of these connections that just sort of happen simply because you're going deeply into the art form. So there are a lot of those with politics and it's really, the, poli the, the political connections are some of the most fun because they're unexpected. Yes. Um, like five years ago, I think I saw like a YouTube documentary about this, but it was more like TV and how yeah. TV is such a reactionary thing to politics. Right. But before TV, there was dance. So, well, and, and TV, it's less surprising because TV is used to show political, like that's where, you know, traditionally that's where we would get our news now, not so much, but before, um, but ballet, you're like, what does that have anything to do with anything? And actually it's been used in soft power as a form of soft power for years in, not just in Russia either in Cuba in the US, in their, in their relations with each other. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, so since we're talking about like, you've created curriculums and stuff, if you had to create a topic similar to this for our current history, what would you try to have placed in a curriculum like this for like contemporary history stuff? You know, because a lot of that is is already relatively contemporary, I think I would just follow it down the path. Let, for example, the Kennedy Center, which is super relevant, was created, was literally built because of our competition with the Soviets. Oh. So 
And the same is true for Lincoln Center. It was part of this because there was a time, well, during the Cold War, we were in competition with the Soviets over everything, right? Over going to getting to the moon, over technology, like kitchen gadgets. And but it was it was overall about like, you know, who's the biggest and most powerful. And then that applied across the board. And the Bolshoi Ballet from Moscow had a really successful tour in the U.S., and Khrushchev was like chiding the press, like, like who has the best ballet, us or you? Of course, it's us. Like you don't even have a permanent theater, you know, because we're like these, you know, the American like rags to riches, like nation of peasant kings. Like, you know, why would we spend on a theater? Like it's not going to bring in enough dollars. And then suddenly it became about our prestige. So George Balanchine, founder of New York City Ballet, was on uh, like an advisory committee to create a theater that would compete with the Soviets. And that theater was the Kennedy Center. Wow. So, you know, so then I think I would I would follow all of that down. Like, where you know, where do arts stand in soft power in politics today? Like, I think you could just expand on that pretty easily. You know, a lot of those people are still alive. Like this is a conversation we're still having. Yeah. Wow. Look at me, everyone being like knowledge bombed. Um, <laughs> like I literally had no idea the Kennedy center was made out of a uh, petty ish reason, but I don't know. I, I literally was just there. I just saw what Moulin Rouge on tour. So like, Oh, awesome. I love Moulin Rouge. Well, the same, and the same is true for Lincoln center. Have I been to Lincoln Center? I don't know if I've ever been to Lincoln Center, actually. Well, you grew up in New York. Yes, you have. Have you ever been to the, the Met Opera? I've watched productions of the Met. I have. don't know if I physically have been there. That's the thing. I used to go to so many places, and I would just, like, go because, you know, I was with my parents and stuff. Like, yeah. apparently I've been all over the city. Like, we one day, this is a dinner conversation we were having. We pulled up a map of New York, and I was like, have I been here? What was here? Yeah, that's when we did this. I'm like, great. What's here? And right. yeah, so I can say well, I've never been Lincoln there. Center has the fountain, it's the Met Opera, it's State Theater, and the Philharmonic all in one like plaza. See, I'm pretty sure I've been to the plaza. Don't know if I've ever been inside. Like okay, well, that counts as Lincoln, that counts as going to Lincoln Center. Okay, if you cool. that, that plaza there with the fountain, then um then you've been there. So that was that was part of that competition with the Soviets. Cool. That wasn't like, oh, we're gonna lift ourselves. <laughs> it was just like everything else with American policy, right? It's about our power tactics. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, speaking of power tactics, we're going to take a 180 on it. So because you already kind of mentioned it that you're into like astrology or hinted <laughs> at it. So we're going to talk about it because I love astrology too. You do. I do. <laughs> um, but before we dive into it, like, so my signs are typically like sun, moon, star, I think is the order. I always screw up like, what's the, if it's star, moon, sun, but I'm pretty sure it's sun, moon, star. Sun, moon, rising, I think is what you mean. Rising, that's it, yeah. Um, I am typically considered a Sagittarius. I like Ophiuchus, I could go into that later. Virgo, moon, and Scorpio, rising. What's yours? What, what, you're a Sag, what's your birthday? December 6th. Oh, Nice. Uh, so I'm a Scorpio rising too. Ooh. So we'll be friends. Hey, <laughs> I'm an Aquarius sun and a Gemini moon. Wow. That makes sense. Why the arts is so like ingrained. 
Well, in a Gemini moon, I'm like a nonstop talker. So me and you will have fun today. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I personally acknowledge Ophiuchus as my main sign because of the research compiled into the controversial 13th sign. For those who don't know, like 10 years ago now, people like quote discovered or really rediscovered the 13th sign because technically like the stars, the way the earth rotates, it passes through Ophiuchus's constellation for like 14 days which threw off everyone's sign, which I assumed it was like next to Aries and who's before Aries. Oh my God. Pisces. Pisces. Yeah. Because that's the quote beginning of the Zodiac. Yeah. But then when I looked it up, I was like, Oh, look at me. I'm the special one. And when I actually was like, okay, what does this mean? Like trait wise. And it turns out your traits didn't move. Just your oh. title moved. Except for like some slight cases. So for me, um, Sagittarius, Scorpio, I got like a blend of their things. And I kept most of Sag, except for you're, you're not clumsy, which I'm not clumsy. So I was like, oh, that makes sense. And I hate being outdoors. And I lost that part too, which I'm like, oh, that makes sense too. But nice. I also got like, quote, the bitterness in spite of Scorpio. <laughs> nice. I and I was that. like, love this. I'm <laughs> keeping with this. And Part of what we were saying before earlier is that another big trait of Ophiuchus is, especially in Ophiuchus like males, is that the feminine energy is so like strong in us. Oh, interesting. So I was like, oh, totally. When you mentioned it earlier, it's like, that's why I'm like digging Ophiuchus. Because yeah, apparently that's like a dominant trait in Ophiuchus men is that their feminine energy is like a lot stronger than their male. And how that plays into your psychology as a human throughout history, that's up to you. But, That's so cool. Yeah. Love it. I love how in it all is now, you know, like with CoStar and all the things, like everybody knows their top three. It's like this hilarious thing. I think it's so much fun. Just a few years ago, it was still like super weird. I guess it's still kind of weird, but now like, you know, now it's, it's going mainstream for sure. Yes. Um, what parts of astrology are you super into and well you know I think it's I think it's just I think it's really fun like I think there's an overlap in the part of the brain that deals with with ballet actually like math you know because astrology is super mathematical right like the yes. aspects and the angles and the timing like it's very it's like it gets confused sometimes it's not a psychic Thing. Not that there's, you know, you couldn't use your intuition or whatever, but like it's, if you get an, an astrology reading, it's not a psychic reading. They're not feeling into it as the predominant tool, right? Like they're right. looking at math and angles, but then there's all of this poetry within it. Like, well, this angle contains this feeling and this, you know, kind of energetic signature which is very similar. I mean, that's a direct parallel with the way you have to approach ballet. Like it's super, super technical and filled with angles. And, you know, there's this famous William Forsyth, who's a, who's a contemporary, uh, I'm a, a neoclassical contemporary choreographer uh, piece called the vertiginous thrill of exactitude. <laughs> I think that's such an awesome name, but like, it's like, there's so much of that in ballet, right? It's like the yeah. vertiginous thrill of exactitude, like, you know, this exacting technical thing. And then all of this poetry within the angles, like you have this thing that's so exact, but what does it mean? How do we do it so that it has a feeling and it, 
what are we communicating here? So I think, I think there's just so much that approach is exactly the same with astrology. So it's just like this easy, like you can hop from one to the other and you're essentially using that same part of the brain. Um, so I think that's fun. And, you know, I've always been interested in like mysticism and I'm not so into them now, but like for, I went through a time where I was interested in tarot cards. Like, like I've, when I was a little girl, I was always trying to do seances. Like I, I, I had a ghost club that only me and my best friend were in it. (laughs) We would collect evidence for whether or not ghosts exist. And like one of my, one of the houses that I grew up in as a kid was there was a revolutionary war cemetery basically in the yard. Oh, so we believe that the house was haunted. And anyway, so I've always been interested in like, well, what is really going on? Like, you know, even as a little kid, like I wanted to know if there was life after death. And I, and I think it's something similar, like just this questioning of like, well, what, what, you know, what is reality? Like, we know that the moon control we know that the moon controls the tides yep and that you know women when they're not exposed to artificial light their their menstrual cycles link up with the moon cycle like so what is going on like the moon is talking to my body and to something as big as the ocean like just just the poetry and the mystique in all of that i think is so is really fun um so then, and I think, I think it's fun to use to check on like the timing of certain things. Yes. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like years ago I had, when, before I was going to start my school, I, um, it was like, I kind of knew I wanted to do it, but I also didn't really feel like it. And I had this, uh, somebody in my life was kind of like, you know, kind of harassing me to do it, like pressuring me. And I was like, I don't know. So I had this reading with this amazing astrologer and, and she was like, well, you could do it now and you'll probably be successful, but you'll be exhausted. And she was like, in about a year, year and a half, definitely within a year, year and a half, she's like, I'm not saying if this is the business that you're going to start, but I am telling you, you're going to be running the show and you'll be successful and the energies will support it. And it was really amazing, Danny. It was like that year and a half went by and so many things changed. Externally, my circumstances changed. And it was like that feeling of like, yeah, I want to do it, but I don't feel like it. It just disappeared and it became this like urgent drive to do it. So after that reading, I was like, oh, because I kind of just did that reading just for fun. So then when I saw how useful it could be, I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, why not? I'm going to use this as a tool. Yeah. Um, Have you ever heard of human design? I have. Okay. So I actually had a human design reading done, which Mm -hmm. took two hours to do because it goes so in-depth. For those who don't know human design, by the way, everyone, it's a mix of astrology, I Ching, Kabbalah, and Vedic philosophy. (laughs) And it's, again, a super science. Like, you have to... or in theory, you're supposed to know like the time you were born. Because yeah. 88 days 
from before you were born is when your soul was created according to the philosophy and whatever the stars in the scar were at that moment, all the mm-hmm. angles and stuff you we were talking about, it all mixes together and creates like these gates and channels within your body. And like mine was spot on. Wow. I was floored. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. And so I tell everyone, if you're into astrology, look into human design potentially. Um, so where are you in human design? What's your thing? Okay, so that's the thing. There's so many parts of it because there's like what, like eighty something gates and like yeah, but like, what's your main like thing? Your main like I'm a I don't know a lot about human design, but I've taken whatever test or whatever, and I'm a I'm a manifesting generator. Oh, same. Sorry, I was just trying to remember. Yeah, no, I'm a manifesting generator as well. Um, sorry, I'm like pulling this up uh, to uh, I my authority is my sacral, which is like listening to your gut. I, oh God, there's more stuff since I last checked. And oh, my environment, which is like where you thrive is for me is it's called shores, which are melting pot places where different elements or cultures come together. Oh, that's and, cool. Yeah. And just like, when you look at like my chart itself, like there is just from, oh, gate 20 to gate 34. And that is just like fully blacked out which means it's all activated which is rare you usually don't get one whole thing that's fully activated and i was like so what does this mean and they were like oh that's power (laughs) i was like what does that mean they're like no your whole life screams that you thrive well not thrive on power but you exude power and stuff i was like oh my god and that was the same year that i was choreographing a show all about power oh that's so interesting it was a high lineup yeah a mashup of like four different songs with the word power in it. Wow. And I was, I just felt called to do it that year. And after I already said it and the kids knew half of it, they were like, Oh, and you have a power thing here. I was like, stop. <laughs> a final fun fact about Cynthia. Everyone is, is that um, you grew up Quaker. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to know what's a big misconception people have about Quakers that you would like to disprove now. <laughs> That's funny. Well, you know, I think a lot of people just don't even know that they exist. Uh, so that's a thing. And then, but the, if they do know that they exist, they'll confuse it with the, they'll confuse it with the Amish because of the hat that the guy wears on the Quaker oats, um, oatmeal cereal yep. box. So that, I guess that would be the big one. They, it is completely, completely, completely like not even remotely related to the Amish. <laughs> Just similar part of the world too, I think is also what throws people off. I think it's the hat and the Quaker Oats guy. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's just a visual. Visuals are powerful, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, and what is something that is true about Quakerism that you would like to share? So uh, I think, so it's, um, it's probably the most non-denominational denomination, maybe not the most, but definitely among the most non-denominational denomination you can be a part of. Mm-hmm. Like, so for a little while I went to Quaker schools, school, and a lot of Jewish people will send their kids to Quaker schools because totally, right? Not the same religion, but the Quakers don't proselytize like the Quaker meeting you just sit and you're quiet um so there's not there's not anybody who's above anybody else in most of the Quaker meetings so I think that's something that's interesting like I I had a lot of Jewish friends growing up like for a while I knew all the fright you know the Shabbat uh 
prayers and same. <laughs> but so, I can think about that. Go on. No, so I I think that that kind of non-denominational like uh, that quiet way of of being I think is interesting. And then they're super into activism. Uh, you know, they were a big part of the Underground Railroad and like the abolitionist movement. So I I think that's that's something interesting. Yeah, um, that's how I knew about Quakers actually. Other than the fact that New York is not that far from Pennsylvania, so <laughs> right. there were lots of talks and some field trips that I didn't get to go on because my parents were like you're not going that far. I'm like okay, whatever. <laughs> right. I got to stay home from school that day, but um, oh god, what were we? Oh my god, there was something you said. Oh yeah, about the whole like open non-denominational denomination. Yeah. yeah. So similarly experienced while you had a bunch of Jewish friends too, um, the JCC, where I live, the Jewish Community Center, like my family worked there and I went to camp there. Oh, so that's I was super ingrained in it as well. And that's also how I knew all the prayers. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Back in the day. Oh, and that's part of also why like I don't understand where my slang comes from because what I mentioned with the Italian slang, it was pretty much 50-50 in New York where I was. You're right. either Jewish or you're Catholic. And I heard all the slang my whole life. Also, so I'm a child of the 90s. And what was on TV throughout the whole 90s? It was all New York. Right. So I just thought the world was like that until I moved. And then I realized I would say words. And people were like, what is that? I was like, it's English. And I called my mom. Like, these people don't know these words. And she's like, that's not English. <laughs> it's really funny. And I was like a teenager at that point. I was like, what do you mean it's not English? just common vernacular. So again, shores, melting points where we right. all cross over. Right. You and I thrive. I don't right. know if that's what your design says, but I honestly don't remember. I just remember the manifesting generator. Yeah. Which for those, Oh, I guess I should explain that. It means that we are strong manifestors, but we also generate as well. Like we're not just sitting around waiting for manifestation to happen. We're working for it too. Mm, right. In the most basic sense. If you want to <laughs> yeah. go look it out, myhumandesign.com. There's a free quiz, everyone. It's not even a quiz. Oh, it's just like cool. enter your info and it pops you up. You should have them support your show. Look, I looked into becoming like one of the readers and I was like, this is too expensive for me. So no clue if they would. I should no, reach out you should have them. You should, you should have them support the podcast. Huh. Maybe. Yeah, I could reach out. I didn't think to reach out to them. Which is weird because this is a, I did that the same time I started this. So you think it would have been right there. Um, but yeah, there endeth the main question portion. So now we're going to hype up one of my commercials and then we're going to go into the rapid fire questions, which are wrongly named. They're never fast because we all tangent. So everyone, Surreal Makeup is a makeup brand that started in 2011 after the owner became allergic to certain ingredients in store brand makeup. Since then, the brand has grown into something amazing. Their makeup is made with the highest quality ingredients available and is hypoallergenic, naturally water resistant, and super vibrant. Okay, that's the official thing I say. But like, as someone who knows these people and have used their products, like all my teams use it. Like, I have a lot of friends that have a lot of allergies and they've never reacted to it. Like, I have a friend that's allergic to aloe and there is no aloe in the products. Or if there is, they like label it so people know. And reach out to them like they started in the cosplay space but it's super glittery glittery a tiny bit goes a long way like i had a sample pod um created for each of my students i was teaching for a season 
they only needed like half of that sample pod for the whole competition season. Oh, that's cool. What's their name again? Surreal Makeup. Oh, cool. Amazing. Yep. They're going to be in the bio too, or description. I'm going to try them. That sounds awesome. Yeah. And just, I love them. Shout out to the owners and a small business. So I, I just tell everyone about them. Love and that. Lots of TikTok lives. So go check out their TikTok. I, <laughs> that's surreal makeup. And the owner, it's just her like playing with makeup. She loves makeup. She has lip stuff too. She like, she hooks you up and she loves having people test. If you ever see them like at a convention or in person, you just walk up. Hey, can I try that? She's like, yeah. Swats you, swatches you. We'll wait with you. We'll chat with you while you're waiting to see if you react. And luckily, oh yeah, because also the teams I coach, they have lots of diversity, especially in skin pigmentation. So I'm always like, hey friends, can I borrow you for a sec to make sure all our colors look great together? (laughs) And never had a problem with any of their stuff. Their stuff shows up on everyone. And just love them. But enough about them. We're here for Cynthia. So Cynthia, are you ready for the wrongly named rapid fire questions? I am. Okay. Question number one. What are your chosen coping skills? My chosen coping skills. That's hilarious. Um, Disassociation. Number one. Uh, And then I guess, I, I, I think that's the main one. And that takes a lot of different, forms and a lot of them are positive (laughs) (laughs) um no it's actually healthy to disassociate sometimes i tell everyone that because there's like a stigma with it but no it's actually really healthy well i have a lot of air in my chart it's an easy it's an easy Uh, access for me (laughs) lucky uh oh what is a show you would bring back oh my god a show okay uh, my first thought was The Sopranos. I, I actually love mafia movies and stuff like that. So, <laughs> did you watch Mob Wives? No, the reality <laughs> show. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> um, which fictional character would you want to end up with? And end up with is up to your interpretation. And oh, island nice. with like end up like shopping with like I leave it open. Okay, a fictional character. Uh, Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones. Wow, no one said Game of Thrones yet, so <laughs> that's cool. Um, oh, what would your signature candle scent be? <laughs> that's so funny um let's see like the signature a signature candle scent i think it would have to be a mix yep you said they are patchouli um sandalwood and gardenia oh that sounds great I had a patchouli and sandalwood candle I made for my grandma for Christmas last year, and it was amazing. But yeah, it's a good mix. Yeah. Um, oh, what would you put in a time capsule? Um, maybe a MacBook, an iPhone for sure. I mean, they changed our lives, right? 
Yeah. Um, a pair of point shoes. I think that would be my time capsule. Cool. Is it a used pair like that broken in or just a brand new pair of point shoes? I think a brand new pair. Let's go in with some possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, oh, this is actually really apt. If you ran away with the circus, what would your act be? I love that. I really want to run away with the circus. My act. Oh my God. I actually know what it would be. I would put ballet with, a with the, uh, one of the fire dancers, like the fire juggler kind of things for sure. 10,000%. Cool. Um, because you probably understand the world of YouTube stuff as well. You probably would have a great answer for this. What would your 45-minute apology video be about? Oh, my God. That's so funny. Oh, my God. So many things. <laughs> Let's see. I would probably have to apologize for saying something incredibly snarky about what's going on in the ballet world, for sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That, and it would just get me in all kinds of trouble, you know, because ballet people are fanatics. So you make them mad, they will go off on you about something that's like, you're like, you know that this is innocuous, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's nuances to everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, what is your best impression? Oh my God, that's so funny. But or if I tell you, you're going to make me do it. No, that's why I say oh. what is, not do. Oh, okay, good. Because I'm like, if the follow-up question is I have to do it. Um, I, I can do really great Billie Holiday and Chris Rock impressions. Cool. <laughs> um, I'm not going to do them. No, that's fine. Um, <laughs> although there are, it is funny. I've had guests on that, like, they're actors and stuff. And when I ask that question, they're like, oh, I have to do it. And I'm like, you don't. But they're like, no, I, you never know who's listening. I could get a job out of this. Oh, <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm not making you do it because I said best. That doesn't mean you're good. Right. Right. <laughs> right. What shape is your star? Oh, I love that question. I think I'd have to say it's a spiral. Ooh, no one said that yet. <laughs> Who would play you in a documentary slash movie about your life? Oh my God. Well, in my vainest, most like idealized imagination, I would love it if it was Kira Knightley. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it works. Kira's played everything. So, oh my God. No, wait, scratch that. Michelle Dockery. I want Michelle Dockery from Downton Abbey, Lady Mary. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. Sorry, I was also Googling to confirm my own suspicions. But I was like, this is who I'm thinking about, right? Yeah. No, yeah. I could see it. What genre would that movie or documentary be about your life? Genre? Well, like not a horror genre. Is that what you mean? Oh, I mean, it could be horror. It could be comedy. Like what genre would that artistic depiction uh, of your life be? Well, I would, I would hope that it was just like, you know, a straight up drama. Okay. You know, no tragedy, just like we're going to go through a story arc here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
final question. Mm -hmm. If your life was a jukebox musical, what would be the opening song? Oh my God. You know, I know I'm going to think of the perfect song in like two days. That's okay. You're going to come back. <laughs> you can tell us then too, or edit it then. But so jukebox musical. So does it have to be a, a like song from a musical? So it's more jukebox musicals are technically musicals that just pull music from anywhere. Like Moulin Rouge. Oh, I see. I see. I see. Okay. Gotcha. Or Mamma Mia or. Okay. Then it would, then, then maybe um, Bob Dylan's She Belongs to Me. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. Um, she's got everything she needs. She's an artist, but she don't look back. That one. There you go, everyone. The. <laughs> movie about Cynthia Dragoni is Kira Knightley starring in a drama with Michelle that Dockery. With, Michelle Dockery. Right, Michelle Dockery. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> with Michelle Dockery in a drama opening to oh god, what's the title again? But uh Bob Dylan, She Belongs to Me. Yeah. Boom. He's actually my favorite musician. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Classical music and Bob Dylan. That's a jump. It is. It is. Um, but yeah. So while you have the platform to say anything you want, even though you have a wildly successful TikTok and you can do this whenever, is there anything you want to share with the world <laughs> while you're here? That is so awesome. No. Well, just, you know, follow me on TikTok, Cynthia Dragoni Dance. Um, I'm going to be teaching actually a program I I'm 99% sure we'll be doing this in Paris net early next summer that you can, you could join if you're a dancer or a teacher. And my website is Cynthia Dragoni.dance um, where I'll be sharing my activities and updates. I work with teachers. I actually train teachers and set syllabi on academic and ballet schools that weaves dance and arts and all of these studies together. And I direct and choreograph um, circus and ballet productions. Um, so yeah, follow me, Cynthia Dragoni.dance and Cynthia Dragoni Dance at Cynthia Dragoni Dance on TikTok. It's my main things. Oh, I'm on YouTube too, but I'm just getting started over there. I'm not as good, but it's still at Cynthia Dragoni Dance. Ooh, okay, good to know. I'll link that too. And yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Danny. This was really fun. I really enjoyed this. Oh, love to hear that. And for all you satellites out there, that's your fandom name if you didn't know. Um, catch us next orbit because, you know, we love a theme and we're just going to create witty phrases about it. And I don't know. Again, Cynthia, thank you so, so much for being here today. Me too. Thank you for having me, Danny. It was a real pleasure. And catch us next time, everyone. Bye. Bye.